Hey everyone, welcome back to the Inking Out Loud podcast. I am your host, Drew McCaffrey, and joining me today is our resident Star Wars fan, John. Thank you for having me. For episode 188, we're covering Victory's Price, the third and final book in Alexander Freed's Alphabet Squadron trilogy. Before we head into the episode itself, a quick reminder that we're on Patreon. Support for the show there helps keep the lights on and gives you access to all kinds of fun bonus content, such as exclusive episodes, exclusive original fiction, and much more. But now, a quick summary of the book. As the final installment of the trilogy, Victory's Price sticks the landing in a satisfying way. Shadowwing, under the command of Colonel Soren Keys, has embarked on a new phase of Operation Cinder, destroying planets home to splinter factions of Imperial forces. Meanwhile, General Syndulla's fleet is in hot pursuit, thanks to covert messages sent by Erika Quell aboard the Yadiz. After several fruitless encounters, Syndulla, Alphabet Squadron, and the Deliverance finally corner Shadowwing at the strange, satellite-encrusted world of Chidawa. As Shadowwing sends radioactive satellites crashing down to the planet's surface, Irka departs on a special mission for Colonel Keys, hoping to unlock the secrets of the Emperor's Messenger. Chas and Kairos abandon their posts with Alphabet to give chase. Irika finds her answers on the droid-controlled world of Natalich, but Chas and Kairos raid her team's apartment just after they unmasked Irika as a traitor to the Empire. Irika transmits the information to her ship, but Chas captures her in turn, and they escape aboard Kairos's damaged U-Wing. Back at Chidawa, Will Lark challenges Keys to a duel, using it as a distraction so Nath and the Y-Wings can disable the Shadowwing ships sabotaging the satellites. As things devolve into a three-way brawl with the local Imperial forces, Will is shot down, but ejects at the last moment. The Deliverance destroys the Imperial Star Destroyer and Shadowwing flees with Erika's information back on board. Kairos makes a blind jump into hyperspace, but an informed one, leading them to her homeworld. There, they find an abandoned Imperial outpost and use scavenged parts to repair the U-Wing. Kairos reveals why she can't contact her people, and she leaves her mask behind as part of a memorial. From there, all signs point to Jakku. The remnants of the Imperial fleet recall Shadowwing, and Syndulla's battlegroup joins the main New Republic fleet. Erika, returned to Alphabet, finally reveals her truth and begs Syndulla to stop Keys from destroying a massive repository of information on every Imperial service member. Syndulla relents, giving her a prototype T-70 X-Wing, and she and Kairos head off to Coruscant to stop her former mentor. At the same time, the Battle of Jakku commences, with Alphabet Squadron and the Deliverance facing off against Shadowwing in the midst of an apocalyptic standoff. Shadowwing uses the same radioactive satellites from Chidawa to blind the battlefield and kill strategic ships, and Nath and Chas lead the fight against them. Will, in a fit of pacifism, announces that he is finished with the war and refuses to fight or lead his fighter group. They succeed in disabling the Yadis and crippling Shadowwing, though Chas is shot down and Will is badly wounded after a sabotage attack that kills the Deliverance. Nath, after getting in the killing blow on the Yadis, sits out the rest of the battle as the New Republic wins the day. On Coruscant, Erika and Keys engage in a wild dance, fighting the planet's defenders and each other, engaging in a debate of philosophy at the same time. Kairos intervenes and Keys is shot down, but manages to land his crippled fighter near the data repository. Erika pursues him, hoping to stop him before he can set off a bomb to destroy the repulsor lifts, keeping it all afloat, and saving the tens of thousands of civilians living below. She finds Keys mortally wounded, and they have one last debate before he dies. In the aftermath, Erika is allowed to go mostly free, and she settles into a new life with Chas. Nath founds a new pirate group with the rem remnants of Shadowwing, Will becomes a senator, and Kairos disappears to begin anew.
Sounds about right. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's nice. We can talk about that, uh, that beverage at the end of the episode. Um, yeah. So I think when it comes down to, you know, writing style, we've already covered Alexander Freed in, in a lot of depth. Uh, we've talked about how he clearly takes inspiration from a lot of aspects of the legend side of the expanded universe. Um, some of the parallels that uh, we see between Alphabet Squadron and Wraith Squadron. And I think those continue here, at least in the first half of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the big ones, obviously, are uh, the comparisons between Erika's plotline aboard the Yadis and a certain character in Solo Command, um, uh, a, a former Imperial who joins the Wraiths and then is outed as a traitor and rejoins the Imperials and sabotages them from within. Uh, but you they... reviewed those, yes. On your okay, yeah. So listeners will be familiar with that, yeah. Plot. And yeah, there's like I'm, I'm gonna try not to go too far into spoilers there, but uh, I think Freed managed to pay homage to what Alston did in Solo Command while giving it a fresh um, slant and not making that the the culmination of the story arc, the way it was in solo command Mm -hmm. that there's, you know, in the second half of the book, we get a new, a new conflict for Erica Quell to deal with and a different sort of ending for her. Yeah. Well, and, and with that, in comparing victory's price or any book in this series, but in comparing, comparing victory's price with solo command specifically, there are, similar some some ways identical story beats yeah but the writing style is still very so much different different. yeah the the tone of this book even more so than the first two gets into the psychology of war i mean so much about erica and keys and the way their relationship develops is all built around this idea of being soldiers and what you take responsibility for as a soldier and that's not really something that Alston ever deals with. He he sticks more to the uh, the relationships of the pilots, and then some of the like internal PTSD that characters deal with. Um, we don't, in a weird way, we don't get that sort of thing here. It's more high level philosophical morality yeah. that Freed is grappling with. And I'm glad, you know, like I'm glad that he chose something as a different core theme for these books than what Alston did in, in Wraith. I I think with so so the Wraith Squadron books, they I'm not saying they lack depth no. at all. I think they do a very satisfying balance um, between their pulpiness and their character mm-hmm. development. But the Alphabet Squadron books and this one especially are almost tiring to read. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, I think we talked about this on Shadowfall. We probably did. There's, there just isn't the same sort of fun to the yeah. story. Uh, there, there really does seem to be a drudgery. Um, you know, the the way the relationships play out among the members of Alphabet Squadron are so fraught constant conflict you know among all of them 
Whereas we see in the Wraith books, the squadron really gel and and come together as a family. And we see the downtime and the fun that they have to keep, you know, morale up. And, you know, I've mentioned this on previous Alphabet Squadron episodes. We get a couple of scenes like that, but I never really bought it in the same way. Yeah. The, the camaraderie felt forced. They all kind of hate each other yeah, too much. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and like, even when, when Freed tries to bring in the like fun, joking, bantery aspects of it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel as natural. It doesn't flow the same way. It's certainly not as funny no. as Alston. Uh, you know, some of the games like the who, what, why, game um i although i will say i liked how he brought that full circle in the uh when shadowing and the republic pilots are broadcasting in the clear to each other Uh in the midst of this final battle and uh you know he, he ties that game back into a really tense moment but like it's there's just nothing there there's nothing like lieutenant catch you know? No, there's not like, there's not comedy. Yeah. There's, I don't know, there, there's moments of levity, but there's not, there's no jokes. Yeah. In, Freed is in much Victory's more brain. concerned with making this a serious war book yes. rather than leaning into any sort of pulpiness the right. way the X-Wing books do. Right. Even the battle scenes are written more emotionally and melodramatically that was an interesting thing and one thing i did make a note about i had some issues with the way freed described starfighter combat in the first two books Uh in this book i thought it was a lot better yes Uh, there was much more of a smoothness to the descriptions uh finally i felt like this connection that he was trying to make between each character's core personality and struggles and the way they fly in battle. I thought those were finally meshing well. Um, because he, he had been trying to do that. The yeah. Whole series. Yeah. And, and I think one of the best examples of it was will and keys in their duel mm-hmm. where the way they fly is emblematic of what their personalities are. And so he doesn't need to get bogged down in the, the sort of crazy technical, you know, hitting the etheric rudder and flipping in a 180 yeah. this way and, you know, rolling it's... out to port. Like you, you don't need all of that minute detail the way some of the earlier battles were described. I thought he really found his voice with dogfighting in this book. And that's one of the reasons I think this is easily the best of the three. Yep. Yeah, I'd, I'd say... If we were doing some kind of letter grade ranking, this this one would be a whole letter grade above yeah, previous books. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Uh, I thought the first two books were very uneven. Uh, both of them could have been a lot shorter uh, or structured differently. This book felt right. Agreed. It yeah, it gels. It the pacing is better. Yeah. It's better written. Yeah, it, it, which is nice. I mean it it took three books but i was ultimately satisfied with where you know i left off when i well closed my kindle and yeah and that's one of the reasons i started writing this series is because 
other reviewers were saying how good this one was. I think this one was out before I started. I can't remember. Might have been just the second one was out. This um, was fairly recent, wasn't it? Yeah. It, like maybe 2020 or twenty. It might have been after Shadowfall came out that I gave the series a try. Yeah, I honestly, like, I haven't paid a whole lot of attention to when, you know, the, uh, the Disney canon things have come out. I'm trying to go to the copyright page here. Um, 2021. So this was just okay. last year. So, yeah. yeah, in that case, in that case, I think I read Shadowfall before this came out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, like I, like you, have seen other reviewers mention the way Alphabet Squadron got better as it went. Uh, I, I have not touched as much of the Disney expanded universe as you have. Uh, this was I still haven't done that much. <laughs> yeah, but this was really my only foray into it. Yeah, uh, and I'm more than I was beforehand even more than I was after Alphabet Squadron and Shadowfall, I'm considering reading more Disney canon because of this book. Yeah, I I think with... I've kind of come to this point, you know, don't want to get too tangential, but with the Disney canon, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily like the, I guess, in-universe historical trajectory yeah like i do with the old eu or at least most of it um yeah like i there's a lot of things i just don't like about it i'm not going to go into a sequel trilogy discussion here but we all know like whatever happens in this time period eventually the sequel trilogy happens however you feel Mm -hmm. about those stories um so there is there there's a certain element of like apathy i guess about the events yeah and like the plots yeah like it's the the battle of jakku like i i knew that that was coming yeah but i didn't really care about it because i already know about the sequel trilogy i already know the result of that doesn't really matter so what what freed's challenge was was making us care about the characters you know, the the larger scale battle at Jakku, like whatever, you know, if you want to get those details, go read Chuck Wendig. I think like you know. every other Disney, well, not every other, there's so many other Disney canon works that have referenced that battle and described parts of it. You, you, It's like a level in the Battlefront 2 game. Mm-hmm. Like it's been beaten mm-hmm. to death. And I think Freed knows that. If someone's reading this book, they've probably been exposed to other star wars books and video games and whatnot and so he just uses it as a way to make it the um the climax of his characters it's it's the background painting the backdrop for you know what he really cares about and that is the interplay between the pilots of shadow wing and the pilots of alphabet squad right like the the environment doesn't matter the strategic considerations don't really matter it's just a battle that happens but it it allows him to work in the conclusion to his character's development. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one thing we were we were just talking about before we started recording was the length of this book and how this this is longer than your 
your yeah. standard Star Wars. It's book. almost half a wheel of time back. <laughs> it it may be more than half. Of I think something it's, like uh, Path of Daggers or Crossroads it's, of Twilight. Yeah, it's longer than half of a yeah, shorter wheel like, of time back. Yeah, the uh, I believe the hardcover was about five hundred and sixty pages. That's a mm-hmm. you know a pretty pretty hefty book for Star Wars. I mean, w- when we think about we compare it with the Race Squadron books, those are like 240, 250 it's, pages. It's a lot yeah. longer than those. Yeah, so uh, it makes sense that in some ways it may feel like more of a slog or, or more of a grind to get to the end of it versus those cl- classic Stackpole and Alston books. Uh, but where I felt like that held... Shadowfall and Alphabet Squadron back. Victory's Price, like I said, it, it felt like it was the right length. With the exception of the final part, I do think the epilogue, there, even though there wasn't technically a, a titled epilogue, it was just it a was couple chapters. Yeah. It was an epilogue. That went on too long. Okay. Um, I did not need that final like reunion scene six years later. Uh-huh. Um, I thought just the, the baseline, like, Hira having her discussion with Erica and and knowing that she's free to f- build a new life and that they have come to a conclusion about how Imperial survivors are going to be handled. Uh, Nath founding his new pirate group with the survivors of Shadowwing. Will going back home and, you know, having a discussion about maybe becoming center. That was all I really needed in terms of resolution you didn't so, need the where are they now stuff. yeah yeah it felt a little harry potter 19 years yeah. later you know or it's like oh let's all like hang out and have drinks and it, it, like that just better to leave yeah. readers to have that in their mind yeah so that's my only criticism of the length of the book um really my only structural criticism of the book in general i liked this book a great deal same yeah same uh but that said, let's let's talk characters here. Yeah. Uh, the the book was largely driven by Erica and Keys, and I'm grateful for that. Which is good. Yeah, I think that's part of why it was the best book. Yeah. Keys is a fascinating antagonist. Yep. Um, Erica, yeah, like she had the sort of Lara Natzel um, plot line in the first half of the book, and I was not sure how that was going to go, but I, I ended up liking the, the sharp left turn it took, you know, having her deal with Kairos in a direct way was refreshing. Mm -hmm. Like Kairos had just been this enigma for two and a half books. Yeah. And then we finally got these answers and that was, it was nice. With characters like that, um, at a certain point, it's just like, you know, this this character is such an unknown and that's kind of their whole identity at a certain point. That can very easily go on too long. Yeah. And you just stop caring. Mm-hmm. Like, at least in the last book, in uh, Shadowfall, like, I stopped caring about who or what Kairos was. <laughs> um, definitely the least interesting character. And so in this book, we finally get a conclusion and an explanation. And it, it is enjoyable. Like, it, it, it was. Yeah. And it was surprising. Maybe it shouldn't have been surprising, but I just didn't think about the the foreshadowing in this way. Uh, that Kairos ended up shifting her loyalty or her bond to Erica from the memory of ITO mm-hmm. and Karen Aiden. I really expected, especially after the scene during the sabotage droid attack, um, 
I expected there to be something more with Hira Syndulla. Okay. And then when when the answers and, and this sort of apotheosis for Kairos came attached to Erika's plotline, I thought that was a genius move on Freed's part. It, it made it so much more interesting because it was attached to the most interesting character in the series. Hmm. Yeah, I, I I think I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, don't know, I, I still think that ultimately I could have read this whole series and not had any points of view from like Nath or Will or Chas. And been fine. And been fine. Because it's just, it really was, you know, Soren Keys and Erica Quell, they're the backbone of what makes the series good. Mm-hmm. But even then, like, okay, I still can't stand Chas. Like, <laughs> three books later. Um, but like the the Will and Nath and and Sindula points of view were more interesting than I expected them to be. Uh, I, I I'll give Freed credit. I was pissed at Will. Uh, Nath is totally right. Mm-hmm. When Will just like abdicated. Abandons his... Yeah, right before the biggest, most apocalyptic battle of the Galactic Civil War. And he's like, no, the war's already over. I'm done. Like, screw you, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, what What do you... Like, that, that's just one of the most colossally stupid military decisions I've ever read about. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna say screw you to all my pilots who whom I've been training for the last I you know. I kinda think it worked for the character though. He should have died for it. <laughs> he should have well, died on the deliverance. So whatever the merits of like what he did or lack thereof, I think what happened with his character in that scene made sense for with, oh, yeah, it did. with everything that yeah. led up to it. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's a break in character. No. I think it's just Will's a friggin' idiot. Yeah. Well <laughs> But that's that's testament to Freed's writing. You know, like I, Will was a character that I described early on as as like white bread. Like yeah. he was totally blank. Very I bad. didn't care about him at all. By the end of this book, I did care. I was angry. Like that's right. he elicited emotion from me mm-hmm. as an author, and that's what you need to do. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So, and Nath, I like. He was he was true to his character as well. He made some frustrating decisions, but at the same time, like he ended up probably being the most likable of the Alphabet pilots. Probably in terms of just like a person. Yeah, yeah. I mean he's a, he's a dick. Yeah, he's not a good dude, as Will very aptly pointed out in that epilogue scene. You know, not a good man. But he he ended up being somebody that I I was rooting for by the end, which I didn't expect either from mm-hmm. from the from when we first met him in Alphabet Squadron for completely different reasons. But yeah, 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 yeah. So like Freed succeeded, I think, in each of his character arcs, even if Chas is just awful. Um, he still succeeded in what he did with her. He completely broke her down and then rebuilt her, you know, in the end. Uh, He completely broke down Kairos. He broke down Keys. He broke down Erika. He, that's what you want out of a satisfying character. These people need to go through difficult things, difficult trials, and come out the other side changed and changed in hopefully a satisfying manner. Mm. So... Yeah, I, I think he nailed it, which is 
not always easy to do. It's definitely not easy to do with as wide a cast of characters as he grappled with. Yeah. Like he, it felt like he kind of dug himself into a hole with having too many POVs, yeah. but then he really did work everything out. Yeah. Like I maintain the series would have been better if he had narrowed the focus a little bit. Possibly. Uh, the first two books for sure would have been better. Uh, but I, I was pleased that he managed to stick the landing with, with all of that. Yeah. Um, now, I'll talk a little more in depth about Keys and Erica, though. Because, okay. like, I mean, you got it. <laughs> They're the core of the series. So, Keys, were you, were you happy that he died? Did you want him to live? Mm, I, I wanted him to live if something interesting happened with his character if he just went to prison or just disappeared i don't think i think that the ending is i think the ending he has is superior to those options yeah i'm not saying there's not possibly a version of the story where he lives that that's like there could be a better version of of that ending but the most conventional ways to end that character other than killing him would not have worked. I like, I don't know if it would have worked, but I kind of wanted to see Devin get resurrected. I would have been, I probably would have enjoyed it if we had gotten a, you know, if, if he had crashed and she had to leave him before like, seeing him die or something. Mm -hmm. And then we got a Devin point of view in the epilogue, the way we got the rest of them. I think that would have been, that could have worked. That that would have been a fascinating way to end it. Um, Like maybe with an awareness of his ability to truly find a new life in the new Republic. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, him seeing that ultimately he was proven wrong, that all of his fears about the treatment of Imperial veterans would not come to pass. Mm -hmm. At the same time though, I can't say I'm disappointed that he died. I I do think the, the final scenes with him and Erica were, were heartfelt. They were well-written. I think he hit some really good emotional beats with those. Even if, even if the philosophical debate they had, carried on maybe a little too long. They rehashed the same points, but I'm not going to criticize that. That that does feel like the sort of thing that would happen on a man with his last hope, Mm -hmm. you know? Uh, But Erica, on the other hand, like, like I have a smile on my face right now because she just had exactly the kind of character arc that I didn't know I wanted her to have. Like, when I think back to Alphabet Squadron and what she was doing in that book and my thoughts on her, I really didn't know what I wanted to happen with her other than I didn't want the exact same thing to happen as Lara Notzel. Right. Well, rarely in those pulpier books, fun as they are, do we get to see what happens to these characters as they settle into like a normal life. Like in the, in the old year and like the Bantam Del Rey books, it's like, 
what happened to all your favorite, you know, Rogue Squadron and Wraith Squadron characters? Well, here's the new Jedi Order. They're still doing the same thing. Like there, there <laughs> like, is ultimately some some uh, conclusion in Mercy Kill. Uh, much this. much later. Yeah, yeah, because it's like you you see um, some of them in their retirement, mm-hmm. uh, and and you get oblique references. Like there is a an offhanded reference in Legacy of the Force to um, like Dono Slain as a like a shuttle company out oh, of Corellia. Okay, and and <laughs> for a that. lot of people. That probably just washes over them. Yeah. But if you were a hardcore race squadron fan, you'd be like, oh, oh, you know, oh, oh, awesome. Like, right. you know, and but you don't you don't see it in the same way that he shows us here. Um, now, you could make a, a comparison between Laranotzel and Mindonos going off to found a, a new company and Chas and Erica going off to found a new company sure. in, in peacetime. But. Uh, it just doesn't feel quite the same way. There's the, be, maybe because it's detailed more in Victory's Price. There's a lot more of like a fairy tale happily ever after feel to it with mm-hmm. Wraith Squadron. Personally, I kind of like it that way more. But maybe for like, yeah, maybe for Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, because that's kind of what star wars is yeah it's <laughs> but you you and i are also people who appreciate it when star wars doesn't stick to its tropes and yeah is trying one of the things. reasons that i have been enjoying the andor show yeah so and there's not not that we'll get into a review of that but like that is so different from every other piece of star wars media that's come out yeah. in the past couple of years that it's kind of fascinating to watch. Um, and that's why I wanted them, like, I, I so badly want the creativity to explore more possibilities in this massive Star Wars universe than just telling the same stories about Jedi over and over and over again. Yeah. You know? I mean, you're still going to get that. Oh, yeah. But I think... I mean, they have to realize and I think they are realizing that a lot of things are a bit stale yeah um so I think we might they're gonna keep cranking out Star Wars stuff because it makes them you know tons of money that's sweet sweet money sweet sweet money so I think Andor is a sign and we'll, we'll see how it goes for the rest of the year with all the other stuff coming out but um I think you might see a little bit more variation in terms of genre and style yeah i hope so that's an alphabet squadron is a sign that they can do it and be successful yeah like uh do you have any other character points no um i think there's so we we talked a lot about how there's probably too many points of view yeah. characters already. I think if I'm being very picky and this isn't really a criticism, if I was to set up this book the way I would like like it to be, there would be less main points of view and an inflated role for the supporting characters. 
Um, in the last yeah. book and, and in this book, we get more of a sense of like the other um, shadowing pilots. Yeah, yeah. We get more of the... Uh, like Ryda the, and Bruch. Yeah. And, yeah. And, there, and we get the Republic ground forces in the last book. Um, we, we, we get those like, I, I don't know it. There's no space in this book for more of those supporting characters, but if the book was just like, um, Erica and keys and everyone else was like yeah. the, the other pilot, the other main pilots were minimized to smaller roles and some of those other side characters and small roles were lifted up. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. yeah, that could have been fun. You could have gotten a little more of uh, like dynamicism among well, the, the military. That's just kind of my preference for war stories. I like a broader view of things. Like, if I'm being really choosy in the fiction that I seek out, I don't really like character-driven war stories. Hmm. I was just very curious about this one because it's star Wars. Sure. But in yeah. the broader context of sci-fi fantasy and historical fiction, um, not just speculative fiction. I like my war stories broader. Okay. Yeah. No, that does make a certain amount of sense. Like having the war story be about the war. Well, yeah. Like you know? I think my favorite military sci-fi period is and will always be the 2004 Battlestar Galactica. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And that, I mean, so that's good. a show. It's a very different format. It's mm-hmm. like, it, it doesn't easily compare to like a book series at all. So, I'm, you know, I but yeah, hesitate you, to you even get a lot in. more of the broad strokes of things. Exactly. And and we got some of that through Hera's, uh, through Sindula's point of view. A little bit. It's very but small. But not a ton. Yeah, yeah, it's very small. And that I really enjoyed her chapters because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, oh, this is like what's actually going on. So she's my last character point, and that's like I so I haven't watched Rebels. Okay. And mm-hmm. and I feel like I was missing something. Like not necessarily knowledge, but emotional attachment. I didn't care about her and her son and like I didn't care about that the way freed wants and i think expects his readers to because honestly i think i think there is a bit of an expectation that you understand like i know some like i know the ghost is their ship in rebels yeah. you know and and when we get to the scene at the end where it's revealed that the freighter in the hangar bay of the deliverance was the ghost i think a lot of readers will get to that scene and be excited or even better than that there will be the scene earlier where Erica is hanging out in, in the bay and mentions there's this VX 100 modified freighter in there. And I didn't know that a VX 100 was the model that the ghost is, you know, but I'm sure there are lots of people who read the book and saw that reference and were like, Oh, that's the ghost. Like, you know, and got that rush. I don't know if I'd put it on Freed that he's expecting readers to have it no i'm I'm not i'm not criticizing for it i'm i'm saying like this was just a lack on my part yeah i think it's kind of like an easter egg yeah if anything like only people that watch rebels all the way through would know that Hera had a son uh with um um was it canaan Canaan? yeah yeah Yeah. i i so that was another thing like i 
there were these cryptic references and I was like, I feel like this has got to be yeah. referring to him. Yeah. But, but yeah. And I think he handled it mostly well because she's not the main character or a main character. Right. So the book doesn't hinge on having that emotional attachment. Right. But her points of view just felt a little hollow for me in ways that I expect are not true for other readers who have watched Rebels. Got it. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot more interconnectedness, a lot more intentionality in these books uh, in regards to the greater Disney canon Mm -hmm. uh, than I'm used to in the old Legends books. Like, occasionally you'd get authors who'd play in each other's saying, you know, like Stackpole and Zong liked using each other's characters. Um, but there were until New Jedi Order when this was a massive and it was intense. collaboration among whatever seven or eight different authors. None of the post Endor expanded universe felt the way this does, where there's like he he's saying, I'm going to use information from Chuck Wendig and from Rebels and from you know Lost Stars or yeah. or you know, what a, the, the, um, what do you call it? The battlefront games. Battlefront two, yeah. Um, like I, I think there was a, a reference to Inferno squad or something like that. Oh, um, yeah. That's, uh, uh, what do you call it? Yeah. That that's from battlefront two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like he's, he's using all of these media available to him in a way that I'm not used to other Star Wars Star authors doing. Star. And I I imagine it's probably the same with, uh, you know, across the Disney expanded universe. Like, I, I imagine that's something that the powers that be at Disney, the story group, whatever, are encouraging authors to do. I think that's They want people to consume the other media. Well, they're doing that with the TV shows, too. Yeah. Mandalorian is connected to Rebels. And Ahsoka. And, Boba Fett. Yeah. There's going to be an Ahsoka show. So yep. on and so forth. Yeah. 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 Um, I feel like that was a good kind of uh, transition into miscellaneous points. Uh, do you have anything in particular you want to bring up? Um, I think we just covered most of my miscellaneous points. Um, I, I have a couple of just like tiny, like, tidbits um not not huge complaints but uh i i have one little tidbit okay i think with most of the newer star wars books i've read um okay so there's a reason for this old eu books when they went to a planet it was usually a planet that it had appeared somewhere before yeah. And because we grew up with this stuff, we grew up with like all these reference book dis- books describing like what these planets are like. It's like if the characters are going to Abrogado Ray, you know that yeah. what that planet entails. If they're going to, I'm talking about planets outside the movies that are yes. just in the books. Yeah, yeah. A uh, planet yeah, like um, Mercur or um, Narshada. Narshada. You know what these places are. You have a picture in your mind. With the new books, I all the, all these plants are new. Like yeah. with maybe a few exceptions. Yeah, like at the very end, Chas spends some time on Coralag. Right. Um, and by and large, I 
like the ideas of what these planets are just don't really gel in my mind. Um, part of that is a criticism of the writing, but part of it is just like I there needs because this hasn't appeared yeah. in any other work, and Star Wars is a very visual. Obviously, it's based on films and a lot of video games. Um, the, like it's it's a lot harder to picture the environment when there isn't when there is kind of scant description in the writing style. Yeah, it, you know, it's funny you bring this up because you know just before we sat down to record, I and I was writing up my summary. I was struggling to remember the names of planets. Yeah, yeah, because it just they they don't stick the way. Um, a lot of the locations and planets we were given in the old EU did. Right. Yeah. Like it'd be one thing if they were referencing planets that had appeared in the new shows or the sequel. Like trilogy. I'm not opposed to bringing up some new planets, yeah. but I wish there was a, a healthier mix. You know, when I think about the, the race squadron books, for instance, mm-hmm. the first race squadron book, we have, a few locations that are like, you know, common or and full or familiar locations. But then we have other worlds like Storinol and Viamar 4 and Ession that were like, they're totally new for the book. Yeah. And frankly, I don't remember those very well. Oh, see, I do, but I've also read that book <laughs> yeah. like 50 times. So yeah. I can't really talk, well, but, but there's that balance. At the know? same time. Yeah. It's not like I want all these books to be referencing the same like 20 planets mm-hmm. that would suck too. So I don't know if I'm, I'm even really complaining <laughs> just, I think um, Freed clearly doesn't want to spend a lot of time on description of physical environments. Yeah. Not, not asking for Robert Jordan here, but there, mm-hmm. there could be a little bit more, a little more grounding in the same. Although he has cool ideas. It's, it's almost so yeah, like, like the planet with the, uh, the artificial that was, satellites. That was really cool. Yeah, 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 that was cool. I, and so there's great ideas and concepts for worlds that I would like to be fleshed out better and for the story to spend more time there yeah. rather than like one battle scene or something. I mean, we got a, we got a little like Chidawa. I was going to bring up as like the kind of exception that proves the rule to this. Cause yeah. I was like, that that planet name I did remember, and I actually have a pretty solid mental image in of my like head. What it looks like, and yeah. you know, but but it took it took you looking up Nelatich. Is that the droid? Planet? Yeah, the to, the droid planet yeah. where like I was hunting through my book looking Nettilich. for a name. Nettilich, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Nettilich, yeah. yeah. Yes, I still got the name wrong. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but. But yeah, I, I do think there could be a little more grounding in the setting. I, I think, sorry, I keep just beating a dead horse here. Um, in the old Star Wars stuff, there was sometimes an indulgence into like weird sci-fi. Yeah. And these weren't <laughs> usually like the best Star Wars books by any means. Um, I'm trying to think of a good planet. There's that one planet that's like a droid manufacturing planet and it's all domes. I think it's from mm. the New Rebellion. Yes. Or, or yes, or, uh, you are correct. It is from the New Rebellion. Uh-huh. Um, um, it's where Brachus posts yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. Or like, um, or or Mercur, where it's like there's these little salamanders that create a force bubble because the the whole ecosystem f- is force sensitive about force predators. Like, yeah, yeah. It, so there's a little bit more of that wackiness. So when those planets are referenced in other places, it's very easy to recall. 
it's not just a forest planet or a desert planet. It's like, oh, it's the planet with that wacky thing. Yes. Yeah. 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 That that is a good and, point. And in this mm. very like, I guess, um, more pared down, more adult, more yeah. more quote unquote realistic, realistic, drier yeah. Star Wars story. It, there, <laughs> there's not. I don't think we're gonna ever get a, a Disney canon story with something like Waru in. No, it. exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but like uh, Chidawa, like that planet has a bit of that wackiness. Like there's something yeah. weird about it. It's it, not it just has like, a character. It's not just defined by a biome or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so for myself, uh, you know, there's like maybe these probably belonged a little more in um, in style. Uh, for some reason I wrote this down for miscellaneous, but uh, the chapter titles. Um, the chapter titles, I don't think work. Um, or, There's a few or, different or at styles. Least they just like, they're meaningless to me. Okay. Like, like part one is called Indigenous Songs of Lost Civilizations. Well, There's no like... meaning to that. And chapter one, Naval Hymns of the Old Republic. There's no meaning to that. It's so what it feels like is free just using the chapter titles to like add some spice of world building. But I want something more out of chapter titles. Like I love, for instance, uh, chapter titles in the Book of the New Sun, where Gene Wolfe gives you a title that pretty much from the moment you read it, you have an idea of an overt topic that is going to come up in the chapter and then as you read the chapter if you're paying close attention a deeper meaning reveals itself and sometimes a third even deeper meaning you know like so there's active reading going on whereas this because it's like you know let me let me find like another example um you know the seven algorithmic etudes of vardos that is nonsense (laughs) like i by the by the time that I got to this book, I just didn't even pay attention. I didn't read the chapter titles because Vardos is not ever mentioned in this book other than that. What are the seven algorithmic etudes of it? Like, it, it doesn't matter to the story. It's just like word soup. And and so that that's like a, a definite disappointment and criticism that I have of these books. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one, and this is something I brought up on our, when we did the Fiction Insider collection. Yeah. Um, it remains a sticking point to me how a lot of new canon writers, or I should say nearly every new canon writer, even Freed, it almost seems writes in opposition to established mechanics of how ships and starfighters worked in the old EU. Um, like there was one moment in in a space battle, not in atmosphere, in the middle of space, that Chas turned on her repulsor lifts and like changed the trajectory of her B wing with repulsor lifts. What are they re- repelling? She's in a vacuum. Yeah, like that makes no sense. And and so and there there are things about how shields work and things about how weapons work that even if just, it's silly and unscientific yeah, they like, were like magic we, rules basically we had yeah we had rules we had things that made sense in in a long standing 
tradition. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, it feels like some of them, they, they like pick, pick and choose which elements of the way ships and vehicles work they're going to use. And then they're just going to ignore them when you get to other things. And that was, that, that just remains a frustration that I have with new canon stories. Mm-hmm. Like I remember really complaining about one of the blade squadron short stories in the fiction collection where yeah, you really got there was this. like, <laughs> there was a, um, I think it was in the very first one at the battle of Endor where there was like a major plot point in the story about how this a wing pilot had to like sacrifice himself because a TIE fighter or a TIE interceptor was on his tail. And I'm like, you're flying an A-wing with guns that can rotate backwards. Well, like, and, and, but the author just ignored that in order to write, you know, a plot point. And, and that's the sort of thing that bothers me. That specific one is very small though. Cause even in all the year, it didn't, it specified that only some A-wings could do that. It wasn't a universal thing. No. We'll, we'll believe yeah, it. Any, anyway, anyway. But, but okay, okay. I, I think yeah. the repulsor lift thing makes more sense, where it's like you can't just... <laughs> Turn on repulsor lifts if there's nothing to push off of. Yeah, because like, <laughs> so so Star Wars, the Star Wars universe, like it's unscientific, but it's almost like having a magic system. Yeah. Like there are rules yeah. to the way things work. Like repulsor lifts are this like anti-grav technology that works like on a plant, like in a gravity well, mm-hmm. right? Like that. that's how airspeeders work which are basically planes yes they can't go in space yep. but they repel against like the a, surface a of the plane. mass yeah right yeah. or like lightsabers lightsabers make no sense but we know that they <laughs> we know that they do these things we know that they have yes. these limitations um we know that this is the way ships fly kind of like one thing that gets that gets brought up a lot is like well star wars space doesn't act like space it's like yeah but you find these little references to like it is some sort of particle ether, and that's yeah. why the ships fly the way they do. Um, oh, another example in this one that bothered me, um, and there there were multiple mentions of it. So, like, I can get over the fact that you know Will Lark says that his A wing is evenly matched in speed and maneuverability with a Tie Fighter, like a regular standard Tie Fighter. Right. Like in it the old EU, the A wing is significantly faster and more maneuverable. Whatever. If they want to like change that for us, fine. But then you get uh, Erica in her X-wing flying against Keys in his Tie Fighter in atmosphere, and she's talking about how because they're in atmosphere, her X-wing is at a disadvantage to his Tie Fighter. Right. It's like no, a Tie Fighter should be significantly worse in atmosphere because of its design, because because of drag on the wings, a, it's and an silly, X-wing is way more aerodynamic. It's a ball with squares, as yeah, to and, X-wing, which and so like why, that that again feels like one of these situations where in order to manufacture tension in this scene, we're going to ignore established rules and physics right in the Star Wars universe. Like so, we we get those things, and I, I recognize this is nitpicky, but it does affect the story and it well, does take me out of bo- scenes. Both Exactly. Both of us like it more when there's consistent rules. Yeah. Um, in, in any, imagine way, that fans of Brandon Sider said like well, consistent yeah. rules. <laughs> yeah. Even, even like Lord of the Rings and wheel of time have some rules as to how things work. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah, when those things are disregarded or, or cast aside for manufacturing tension, like you do notice. Yeah. 
Um, a couple other just like random little little things I noticed. Uh, multiple times he used the word racked, spelled R-A-C-K-E-D, um, when it should have been racked, W-R-A-C-K-E-D. Um, like racked by sobs or yeah yeah racked with pain guilt or yeah pain. um but yeah multiple times in this book like i noticed it the first time and i was like yeah whatever yeah typo yeah. and then i saw it again and it was like there was one point where it was like twice in a page that he did it and i was like okay <laughs> uh but and then there was one other point and i'm pretty sure it was the only time in the entire series that this happened uh-huh. which is like it, all the weirder that it slipped through but there's a scene in chapter 16 where Erica and this is when Erica and Chas and Kairos are all together um it's in Erica Quell's point of view and then there's one random line I am happy Kairos said astonished and bittersweet and I'm like there's just this weird point of view shift to Kairos for one sentence and then back to Erica. Like either, either Erica has like omniscience and knows that I am happy means that she's astonished and bittersweet. Or we just jumped into Kairos's head for one line and then jumped back. It's like, it, that one was, was intended really to be some form of like psychological impression. If, if so, there's nothing to indicate that yeah. in the text. So yeah, like again, these are super nitpicky little things, but just miscellaneous stuff that jumped out at me. Uh-huh. Um, but that's you know that's about all I had to to talk about with the main text. Uh, do we want to get into some favorite scenes? Um, yeah, I I think I can probably recall like one or two. I don't know if I can do okay. like a full ranking. Yeah. So I'll, I'll kick it off. Uh, my third favorite scene. Oh, actually, let me let me find my notes again. Uh, yeah, so it was uh, Will flying against Soren Keys um, over Chidawa. I probably would have put that higher. Yeah, I like I said earlier. I thought that was the best written dogfight in the in the series. I thought he did a great job of meshing together the personalities of the characters into their flying, flying styles, styles and in the actual description in the prose, it was a a poignant scene where we got these conflicting methodologies and philosophies of combat and ultimately Soren as the more martial, the the soldier rather than the artist. Mm. And he is the one who has the capability of actually shooting down another pilot Whereas Will has opportunities and hesitates, you know, mm-hmm. I, I really liked how that whole thing played out. Agreed. Yeah. Uh, do you have one? For a third? Um, or just whatever. Just whatever. Yeah. I, I like when after Kairos and Chas have like, I don't know, captured Quell, recovered Quell. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're on this like, was it like a jungle planet? Yeah, yeah. Um, and the interactions they have with kind of coming ca- coming to a certain level of peace and acceptance as to why Quell did what she did. Like yeah. it's not fully resolved, and it shouldn't be fully resolved because Quell caused 
pain and confusion to her former squad mates. And so you can't just like say everything is okay. But I thought it was a realistic way to start building towards a res- the characters resolving and understanding that part of Quell's conflict. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. So my second favorite scene was Nath realizing what Will is doing over Chidawa mm. and calling in the strike uh-huh. and saying, you know, like, he's giving us this opportunity. I, in general, I liked a lot of Nath's internal ruminations over Will and, and their relationship. But that scene in particular was really good. And then, you know, he has to deal with the, having the Y-Wing squadron he's leading just get absolutely destroyed. All of them, yeah. yeah. There's like three or four of them who live. Um, but the, in general, Chidawa was a really strong point in the book. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, again, like in no particular order, not like second or anything, just another scene that stood out to me, was the third party Imperials yeah, aghast in the yeah, unyielding. That he's Scottish in the audiobook, so I just think of him as the Scottish <laughs> Imperial guy. Um, but their interactions with Keyes' faction, with Shadowing, and yeah. with the New Republic, I just thought it was it's fun to have a third faction thrown Always, in. Yeah. Like maybe it would have been tedious for the entire book, but um just having them there in that battle um, and having them kind of like lashing out, not really trusting anybody. Yeah. Um, was, was a good dynamic. Yeah, definitely. I like that. Uh, my favorite scene though, was shadowing versus alphabet at Jakku. Uh, it was flying in the storm of radioactivity and the open dialogue between them. Uh, and specifically the like who, what, where, or who, what, why game, um, even though like every other instance of that game being played in the series, I just sort of rolled my eyes and some uh-huh. of them I skimmed over. Uh, that one, he really nailed it. He landed Oops. it. That that made that scene pack a lot of punch. That, so that actually wasn't my favorite scene. I thought we were going to yeah. agree on favorite scene. Hmm. I just really liked the end between... Um, Quell and Keys. And Keys. Yeah, I thought that whole motivation, that the whole concept there of like, we have this, I mean, MacGuffin, whatever database. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the philosophical concept that it introduced, it's like, do we either yeah. preserve it and everyone gets held accountable, come what may, or do we wipe it away thus creating a fresh start for all these enemy many people who uh, of whom may not deserve a fresh start sure yeah you know the whole range of like um somebody just doing their job without even a combat function up to like the true believer killing as many yeah people as possible um yeah, I just thought that that was probably the most compelling philosophical part of the book for me. For sure. And so having them, like, come down to Deep it, it you know, they had their action scene and whatever. Yeah, and that was well written. That was cool. Like, you, it, so that, like, that's Coruscant. That's a very familiar point. Yep. 
that scene was very easy to visualize. Yes, definitely. I knew what that looked like in my head. But once they come down to it and they're in this, I don't know, bunker database thing or whatever, um, they're just kind of duking it out philosophically about the merits of either choice. I thought that was good. It felt like the it felt like a, like a choice in like like a Bioware game, like a Mass Effect or a Dragon Age. Yeah, sure. It's like you yeah. have to make a call one way or the other um, and, you know, deal with the consequences of it. Yeah, that, that actually makes a lot of sense. And I, I honestly, I didn't even think about that scene when I was considering favorites. I probably should have. Yeah, that's the stand. Yeah. That's definitely, I can't rank the others. That is my favorite scene in yeah. this book. Okay. Nice, nice. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our discussion of the book itself, but of course we have the final draft. Mm -hmm. uh, what have you been drinking over there? I've been drinking um, a Weldworks beer, of course a brewery that doesn't take themselves too seriously. <laughs> um, and here we have Beachside Boba, which you want to, because yeah. you had to explain it to me, you want to explain the, the Be concept of yeah. this series. Yeah, so Weldworks has a, a series of these. This is our thematically appropriate beer. Um, when you hear the name, you may think Boba Tea, but no, this is Boba Fett. Um, I, I thought it was going to yeah. be a Boba Tea. The, uh, the label is is uh, you know Boba Fett sitting on a beach chair with his you know his helmet off and just chilling. And they apparently have like a a few different versions. I think there's like a mountaintop Boba and a, and another new one coming out uh, where he's just like on vacation <laughs> all the time, which I think is hilarious uh, obviously not specifically uh connected to alphabet squadron but star wars in general star wars themed and it, yeah too too fun a beer to uh to not bring on yeah uh talk about the beer though so obviously i haven't tried this one it, it is uh self-described as an imperial sour ale okay. which imperial sour so sour to me describes so many things but in modern Trendy beer. Berliner Weiss. Berliner Weiss. Fruited Berliner Weiss. <laughs> uh, with raspberry, guava, passion fruit, and natural flavors. Definitely notice the base of this being a wheat beer. Yep. Not every quote-unquote sour is. Yeah, yeah. You get a lot of like sour goldens or sour brown ales. You get Very much those so. Flanders reds. And, and I, like I, I adore sour browns, but that's a conversation for another Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, it tasted like juice. Um, <laughs> yeah, John John poured it, took a couple sips, and asked if if I had any ice for him to put in. <laughs> yeah, um, which seems weird that for beer. Juicy. This this could have ice. It it just straight up tastes like juice. Nice, nice. <laughs> well, um, I was drinking a non alcoholic beverage, a non alcoholic brew from Athletic Brewing Company. Uh, they've been kind of a standby in in these months of. Uh, dryness sobriety. for me sobriety um but this is their uh, cerveza atletica um <laughs> it's their you know non-alcoholic vienna lager essentially it is very nice it, it they really nailed the flavor profile on this I, I can't remember if i brought this one on i know i brought other athletic beers on but yeah it's been one of my go-to's this summer so definitely a good style of beer yeah and with that, that brings us to the end of episode 188 of the Inking Out Loud podcast. Uh, next up, we are going to be heading on over to the Cosmere. We're going to be returning to Mistborn with the Alloy of Law, kicking off Mistborn Era 2 as we 
gear up for the release of the Lost Metal in a couple months here. Actually, maybe in about a month by the time this episode comes out. Uh, it's going to be yeah, very exciting. Uh, we're going to have Jared back on, and I think Lauren is going to be returning to the show. So that's going to be fun. As always, if you want to support Inking Out Loud, find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash inkingoutloud. Uh, we deeply appreciate all of our patrons on there. It's, uh, you know, it is the main reason I'm able to keep this thing going, especially now that I'm running solo when Rob is off uh, learning how to fix fighter jets and cool things like that. So, yeah, consider supporting us there. I have been your host, Drew McCaffrey, and with me is my special guest, John. Enjoy to be here. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.